Praise Dionysus. Hi. Hey there. It's it's Jake Stewart. Hi. Hello to you specifically. Uh, I am here by myself this week. Um, James is not here for reasons that I will go into. Um, this week we're talking about two shows. We're talking about Plain English Theatre Company's production of Have a Good Night, Walter at La Mama Theatre. And we're talking about 5x5 Theatre's production of Broken Record. Talk to you in like just a second. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. It is just me. Sorry if you feel felt baited by that introduction in terms of James's absence. I didn't mean to make it sound like there was any drama behind it. There truly isn't. Um, we were meant to be re- like recording today uh, and he d- was worried about his Ill, like uh, wellness. His, his wellness. Um, you know how people have just suddenly started caring about their health ever since this this pandemic. Um, I'm sick of people referring to it as a panini and then waiting for you to laugh about it. That's just a little side gripe I have. Um, yeah, yeah, so he... His tale was one of him recently having been stationed beside two different COVID victims at work. I don't know if I can disclose that. I don't know how medical rules work. He works in a hospital. I... I don't know if I can disclose this information, but here we are. Um, <laughs> um, tell no one, please. Um, so yeah, he's he's away from me in order to keep us, to keep me safe and to keep him isolated. Um, and that is my tedious story about James's absence. Um, so yeah, this week will be different. It will be a lot of this sound that my mouth is currently making and less of the one that James's does. Um, I hope that's bearable for you. Um, I don't know if it would be for me. <laughs> um, yeah, so how was my week been? Thank you for asking. Um, out of five stars, I'd say I am going to give it, I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give it 69 stars. Uh, not to be lewd, not to be crude, but I guess I am <laughs> intending to tell you this tale of, I don't know why I keep saying tale. It's because fucking Joel keeps singing into the woods and that's why... I keep thinking about fairy tales. Um, anyway, I, I, I have been rehearsing a show for the last few weeks because our show opens really, really soon at Theatre Works. I hope you come. Um, if you're in Melbourne, I think you should. It'll be fun. I think. Um, I'm excited about it. I'm nervous about it because it's, I don't know. It's of course it's it's anything on stage is always gonna you know come with some anxiety. But it's it's like the subject matter is quite personal and strange and. Um, I've never really made a piece of theatre like this before, um, so I don't know how people will feel about it. <laughs> hopefully, think they, hopefully they think it's fun. It's meant to be goofy, um, but you never know. And that's that's I'm I'm laying out for you the essence of what what the peril of artistry is in the theatre. You're welcome. Um, uh, sorry, I've been rehearsing all day, so my brain's in this weird... I don't know, to, to any of you that are... I can't speak for all of the art mediums, but when it comes to theatre making and maybe playwriting specifically, I think when I'm super embroiled in a, in, a, in a process, especially one that requires a lot of like writing, like a lot of word swamp head action um, and actually like putting words onto pages, my head does this thing where it breaks off into what feels like two distinct modes that, that maybe coexist more comfortably between projects. But then the moment that a project starts happening and, 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 you know, scripts need to get printed or dialogue needs to get, you know, chosen, 
somehow I, I have like two consciousnesses and and it, it just requires me to you know flop between the two of them in order to function um anyway that's needless <laughs> um that's that's just that so if i sound scattered it's either that or i have no charisma text in your guess <laughs> Um, 69, it was my hilarious decision as far as my star rating goes, because I went to the sexual health clinic this week. Um, and, uh, uh, I, sorry to sound like I'm ramping up to an HIV diagnosis. I don't have HIV. I got that text message yesterday, which is always nice. <laughs> um, it's, uh, I, I don't know. I've told one person this story over the phone and it, it, even just that, that telephone experience just really bubbled up for me. I called her before I went in and I called her afterwards and the phone call on the way in, it really brought to the surface all of my anxieties surrounding sexual health. And, um, <laughs> and even just like me being a person who does not consider themselves to be a, like a, like a promiscuous person by any stretch at all. Like you'd almost have to not know the definition of promiscuous to call me it. Um, it, it, it even still like going to get sexually analyzed as, as these fine facilities offer the services, um, of <laughs> it for some reason still brings up, I don't even think it's like a, like a Catholic stigma. I don't think that's where this indoctrination came from. I just, I don't know. I think, I think it's because my earliest experiences with sexual health clinic attendants were very anxious ones. And so I think I'm always, the part of who I turn into when I enter into these places is like the like frightened 21 year old who thought he might've had gonorrhea <laughs> um, upon his first visit. Um, anyway, but yeah, no, I was just going in for a, for a felt like it had been a while kind of thing. Um, asymptomatic, like a champion. Um, I don't know if that applies if you have nothing. <laughs> Are we all just asymptomatic until we have the symptoms of something? I don't know. <laughs> Um, but yeah, but there's a story and I'm going to tell it to you. Um, but if you relay it to anybody, please just make me sound very dignified and put together. Um, but here's my story about this week going to the sexual health clinic. <laughs> um, so I turn up to it, uh, nailing it. I turn up on time. I go to the little window. The woman is nice. She compliments my hair. I don't know if she was lying. Uh, I get, you have to fill out the questionnaire, show her the dumb little green screen, go back downstairs and you have to wait until they call you to bring you up into like one of the examination rooms. I wait there, I stand there, I get the phone call, I answer it. It's a British man's voice. I obviously assume he's beautiful. I am told to go to room, I think 4F for my like appointment thing. I go to 4F, I go inside. He's even more stunning than his British voice on the phone made him sound. He starts talking to me like a doctor does. I say, I'm just here for like a checkup examination thing and it's warm inside the room. So I start taking off the like jumper thing that I have on. He sort of like looks weird. And then I'm like, no, I'm not getting naked for you to examine me. That is the beginning of what then proceeds to be me nailing this social interaction over and over again. He proceeds to then ask me when my last examination was. Um, and then I sort of like, I think about it for a second and then I'm like, oh, and I say, ah, I think it was like around the time that I like went through a breakup. I'd say that was probably like a year and a half ago. And he was like, oh, with your GP. And I was like, no, I didn't break up with my GP. And he was like, no, did you get the examination with your GP? And I was like, no, I think I got it done here. And he was like, Jake, you haven't been here for three years. And I was like, oh my God, where did I get that checkup then? And then he was like, Jake. And he said this with a real sense of like, 
Like, it seemed like he was suspicious. Like, he was like, oh, it, like, we switched into this mode where he was like, I think I may have stumbled across a terrorist. And was like, Jake, where were you a year and a half ago? And I truly, my mind emptied of all knowledge. I could not... <laughs> I was like, I went into like, I was, these concerns, like, was I hit on the head with a shovel? Why, why can't I, like, did I kill somebody and forgot about it? Like these, it's like when you hear a police siren and you think, oh God, did I do something? He kept the conversation rolling. It was pleasant. I don't know if it was like, calm me down because it seemed pretty flustered and pretty suspicious, honestly. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I wasn't sure if it was like, okay, um, let's, let's calm this guy down so we can find out if he has syphilis or... It was because he'd like pressed the red button under his desk and security was coming. But yeah, we continued talking. He recommended I go to a story slam, which I feel like is always a dicey recommendation from anybody, including like perfect seeming doctor people. Um, but all that aside, so we continued talking. It was sweet. And then at the end, he hands me all of like the things that you need to like swab yourself with, um, and whatnot. And then I, he, so he hands me these things and there's like a, they're all like gross things that you put in places in your body. Um, and, uh, he handed them to me and he was like, okay. And then you can like head down the hall and do that. And I was like, and I said to him, oh, you're not going to do this for me. Literally only referring to the throat swab because I didn't want to not get my throat correctly. I'm sorry that this story is so sexy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> yeah, that, literally that's what, I didn't want to like not get my throat correctly and then, I don't know, somehow unknowingly be walking around with a ghost in my neck. I don't know what these scans show. Uh, so yeah, so then he looks at me and then very politely is like, do you want me to do that for you? And then I sort of just like, I don't know what I did. I sort of just curled into a ball and somersaulted out of the room. Um, But yeah, no, then I went and did the necessary swabbing and whatnot. Again, apologies that this story is so, so hot. Uh, (laughs) Did the things and then seemingly took too long to do it, I guess, because while I was there, I got the weird phone call that you're supposed to wait for in order to go and get the blood test to check the HIV. I missed it. And then there was this whole debacle where I had to go back to the, like the woman at the front desk and be like, I got a phone call for this blood test, but then I think I missed it because I was like, you know, doing science in the bathroom for too long. Um, and then she was like, go back to the examination room you were in. So I go back to 4F, I knock on the door, it, uh, the guy inside opens it. It's just some random half naked person who's just like, hi. And I'm like, hi. And he's like, what are you doing here? Quite sweetly. And I was like, I don't think I'm here to help you. And then I, oh my God. Eventually blood got taken. As we established earlier, I do not have HIV, which is exciting. Um, anyway, I should I have told you this story? I do not know. Will I be going to a story slam because a beautiful doctor told me to? It's super duper possible, honestly. (laughs) Um, I may, he made a good case for it. Um, And he's a doctor, so he has a stethoscope. Um, So I'm gonna listen to him. Uh, Yeah, I guess I'm glad that I told you this story partly because it was so absurd and I'm glad that other people know that it happened. Uh, uh, And and also, I I guess I also wish that people had told more stories about their sexual health experiences uh, when I was when I was entering the the field of of, you know, humpery and the and the and the medical mumbo jumbo that comes along with it. Anyway, let's start talking about some theatre. Please stop thinking about sexual health. (laughs) Um, Not generally speaking, just right now. Because right now we're talking about a play called Have a Good Night, Walter, which is, it was uh, at La Mama. It was directed by James Robertson um, and written by Anonymous, which is mysterious and something that we'll come back to. Full disclosure portion of of this play, um, 
Um, it, it stars Bridget Morrison, who I do not know personally, but I just, I feel like it's necessary to bring up as a full disclosure thing because I saw her in Lenore. Um, uh, if you remember back, uh, it was one of the first shows we ever spoke about. It was, it was Lenore. It was based on <laughs> sort of the, the, the figure of Edgar Allan Poe and his poem, The Raven. And that show was incredible. Um, Bridget was remarkable in it. It was my first encounter with Sebastiano Petruzzello, which I cannot get into without being overwhelmed. Um, and yeah, so I just wanted to flag that it's it's just so wonderful to see Bridget on stage again, because um, I'm certainly a fan of hers, I guess. <laughs> um, and she, yeah, just, yeah, uh, didn't disappoint. Um, the show itself, uh, the show itself, it's about a couple Um in their, I guess, late 20s would be my stab if age matters to you. Uh, they have a baby and they are wrestling with like mental health issues that are kind of like, and the, the marketing talked about OCD, um, but it, it, it sort of like seemed from the get-go that maybe there was some other stuff at play. Uh, it, it opens with the couple sitting on the couch and and it's like, how do I even start with in, in terms of like what this thing made me feel? First of all, I'll start off with saying I didn't see this play live. I saw this play because it's on like La Mama Theatre has like an online theatre watching thing. They have a, like a snappier term for it than that. Um, but you can watch, I don't know how many plays they have on there. When I looked, it looked like they just had two of them. Um, I was only skulking around there because I, I was keen to see keen to see Bridget in this show because I couldn't see it when it happened. And I was like, oh, fooey. Um, and then, but then yeah, this, this online service exists. So yeah, so it was already that sort of like additional, it's the, I don't know how much online theater you may have watched. I, it had never really been a thing to do in my life until lockdown started happening. And then I remember early on, and I think it was the national theater started offering maybe like fortnights worth of like a free performance that you could watch and I watched Streetcar and I I don't remember if it was when they offered it for free or when I purchased the subscription to their like online database of recorded plays but I watched Streetcar with Gillian Anderson in it um and Vanessa Kirby if I'm remembering right am I or am I confusing that with Miss Julie anyway <laughs> um watched Streetcar it was long. It had never felt that long before. It's not Jillian's fault. Um, but it took me a while to get through. And I really love Streetcar, as as, as every simpleton does. <laughs> um, really into Streetcar and and really into Jillian Anderson, again, as, as every simpleton is. Um, she's remarkable. Um, but because it was on screen, and I know a few, I, having spoken to a few people about this experience, I feel like there's some really unified objections that, that people tend to have when it comes to watching theater on screen. And the first sort of obvious one is it, it puts you at a distance that theater does not put you at. And I find myself, especially with, I remember the recording of Streetcar that I watched and a little bit with Have a Good Night, Walter, um, even just being able to see the audience and like hear them, I just get so jealous of them. <laughs> and that, 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 that is always a thing that is, that is in the way of me feeling like I'm getting the proper experience of, of a piece of theater. And, and that sort of like low grade resentment um, is, is an unwelcome element of my experience of these pieces. Anyway, um, just, just I, I guess bear that in mind as I go on to talk about this show is that I saw it 
through the eyes of the cameras that were set up in in the space. Um, but yeah, so the show starts with like a young couple that have a baby and they're just like sitting there and kind of bickering. And it's like, ugh. it certainly has like, me being someone that is like, it's at the sort of like, you know, around the age where you have to start making decisions in terms of like, what do you want your future to look like? Like, what, do, like, do you want to start a family? What sort of family do you want it to be? Like, if you want a partner, what do you want to do with them in terms of domesticity and, and in terms of like offspring and, you know, all that jazz. And so uh, you, you, you put lights up on a scene of, of a, you know, I don't know what you assume is sort of like a, a monogamous heterosexual middle-class couple and it's like all those and it's on, on you know and it's on stage it's like all of those concerns kind of like bubble up inside you a little bit being like oh what is this take going to be it's like when I went through this like real spate of watching movies about people in their like what's considered to be like your twilight years like Blythe Danner recently made a movie with I think Rhea Perlman was in it with her and it was I think it was called like I'll see you it was, it was something like, I'll see you in my dreams, I think it was called. And it was probably like the fourth or fifth movie that I'd almost accidentally seen in a row that was about people in their like 60s and 70s who thought their lives were going to be better. <laughs> and then they just proceeded not to be. And I just watched too many of these things in a row and they ridded me of any sense that, 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 that there was hope for the future for people generally. Because, and it's just a thing where it's like, if, if you submerge yourself in enough stories, maybe, is this religion? I don't know what this is. Um, that, that all have the same ending. You start to believe like, oh, this is the only truth that I'm being offered. This must be the truth. Um, it was a really good movie though. It was really upsetting. Poor Blythe Danner in the movie. I feel like in real life, she's fine. Like, it'd be so fun having Gwyneth Paltrow be your daughter. <laughs> Can you imagine? Um... Yeah, but yeah, so any 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 time a play sort of like orbits around the 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 setting of a domestic young couple um who have made that decision to be you know what what a lot of our parents did um it just it just you know forces at least me to be like very reflective of like okay, I'm me right now. I could take steps and try to turn into that and you know, come on, Jake, grapple with the reasons that that is not a thing that you are super consciously heading towards right now, at least. Um, so that, that, that was one thing that was quite early on sort of planted as a, as a, like a theme and a concern in my noggin. Uh, and then of course, anytime you hear a fucking like, it was baby crying. There was like a, a transition that happened in a blackout and it was like, scene like the first sort of scene happened a blackout happened and then the end of that blackout was the sound of a baby crying through a baby monitor uh and then the light started coming up and i was like god i hate the sound of a baby crying which is not a cutting edge thing to say but it's like (laughs) um anyway uh yeah so it's this young couple with a baby and then it sort of becomes clear that the dad is kind of crappy in terms of his willingness to participate in the, the sort of like child rearing and uh, like the, the sort of like the nurturing and the the burping and the, you know, all the gross baby stuff that you have to do in order to be a participating parent um, played by Connor Deacon. And he really um, nailed, I was, it was very easy for me to be on Bridget's character's side in terms of finding him very frustrating. <laughs> I think, I think just being a gay man, I'm more likely to side with, I'm more likely to side with the mother. <laughs> um, 
and that's that's certainly what happened. And again, I come in with the bias of thinking that Bridget's remarkable. So, um, yeah. The play really, like, nicely illustrates, and it's really well performed by the two actors that I just mentioned. Um, the, the thing that I guess I've seen in Couples, um, that, that I must have seen, because I, I really felt like I recognised it, but I guess I, I... Yeah, the thing of where, like, they can flip-flop so comfortably and rapidly between being really, really hostile with each other and then being remarkably tender. Um... It's just a thing that I hadn't seen on stage for a while, and and these two actors handled something that, that is, uh, you know, that that's that seems quite complicated to me, um, and may, maybe it's a skill that you adopt when you when you have <laughs> been in a couple for a while, or you just I don't know, you're stuck together and you hate each other but you love each other. I don't know, I don't know, but I that was just a thing that stuck out to me as something that was that was inherently quite quite human in the way of when you choose to you know, tie yourself to somebody. Maybe that's just a thing that, that surfaces. Um, eventually they get to this place where they are having quite like a, like an engaged, exciting kind of like dirty, angry conversation about the things that are stopping the dad from being a better dad in the traditional sense, in terms of his sort of like parental participation. And then this like naked woman walks in <laughs> um, and she's threatening to cut her nipples off with a knife. And that was really exciting to me because it was it was a left turn that I was not ready for. And anytime that occurs, of course, it's exciting. It's like, what the fuck is going on? She nakedly storms into the house, has a monologue to say, says the monologue, uh, etc. You know, like these, it's from then on, the play is then kind of like fueled by and punctuated by unexpected character entrances, moments of kind of like almost like expressionistic flourishes. Like it's, it's, I don't know, there's almost like, shadows of kind of like Sarah Caney-ness in the way that things sort of occur in, in kind of like an understated way, um, which was a really welcome surprise. It was nice. Like I was ready to sit through kind of just like a tense kitchen sink parental drama, but it was cool to see something kind of like daring and odd, um, as it always is. Um, it's nice when something kind of like starts feeling uh, surprising um, and, and, risky and unexpectable. Unexpectable? He meant to say unpredictable. Um, the play definitely succeeded in saying some really, oh, what, some really, like, powerful, powerful is such a lazy thing to say, some, quite eloquently said some things, and not with words even necessarily, but with, with the way that, you know, the play functioned and, and how things unfolded, said some really wonderful things about, you know, mental illness generally, but also, like, one of the things that really stuck with me, I think, was the idea of having to sort of like embrace and live alongside things like intrusive thoughts and a fear of one's own capacity or the fear of one's own shortcomings, I suppose. Um, more so in the in the mental illness sense, but can obviously be applied more broadly. But it, it yeah, it, it really like illuminated a lot of what, what I imagine is a fear, like particular fears that young parents especially would have, I guess. But with uh, me being someone that does not have any children that I know of, uh, yuck. Uh, I, I, get, I can certainly apply to my own life the idea of having to trust yourself to take care of the things that you care about and having to live with the anxiety of being the one who's tasked with having to be the one that protects those things from the world and from yourself. Uh, 
that's that that's a cool thing to see talked about. I I do have to restate the wonderfulness of Bridget Morrison. I love the way that she is a really surprising that a really surprising performer and and it seems her her behavior always I don't know in the two times that I've seen her perform so wonderfully there's it seems just like her instinct is so fascinating to me I I really enjoy the way that she like occupies space I really like the way especially in this role with with it being like the role of a young mother like the way that she occupied her body and and showed the the sort of the physical toll that motherhood has taken on her and the way that uh, yeah the way that she just exists inside of her body is is really exciting to witness um and I also just wanted to highlight a person that I don't think I've encountered I don't know, in recent memory, Carter Smith, who plays one of the, one of the surprising inclusions without spoiling anything. Uh, but he, he has a, 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 like a challenging role to play in this piece. Um, a couple of challenging roles, I guess. Um, and, and uh, he, he manages to, yeah, make, make something really, really sort of electric and absurd and cool out of it. Uh, and I was just really impressed by that. Um, uh, to loop back quickly, just to yeah, with the play obviously being written by by anonymous, it's of course super intriguing for someone to not want to put their name to a to a piece they've written. Um, but of course, it's super cool. <laughs> it's it's really cool. Um, it's certainly, and I feel like we like James and I, I think, have talked a little bit about um, what it's like to 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 what extent um, individual audience members, of course, uh, invent the writer and. And to what extent it's important to be able to picture some version of the writer in order to interpret the piece of art that's in front of you. Um, and similar with directors and similar with, I suppose, um, imagining what an actor is like off stage. Like I've certainly done that with, I guess, particular performances, I suppose. Um, but to think about writers specifically, um, it was an interesting experience going into this, having no real hints in terms of uh, trying to, imagine the source of the of the of the words that this play was full of uh which was cool um it's yeah i I guess neither a negative nor a positive thing um it it really was only a thing that occupied my mind creatively afterwards in being like who did i want this play to have been written by and i don't know why that's significant um maybe you have an idea but um it was an interesting puzzle to try to piece together like even trying to work out whether they were whether they were writing from the perspective of a mother or a perspective of a father or, or something in between or neither, you know, uh, was, was just an interesting thing to wrestle with. Um, I will also just be super keen to speak to whomever this person is and ask them why they didn't want to put their name to it. Um, cause again, it's, it's just cool. And yet just speaking of the writing, I just wanted to point out one line that I thought was really lovely and upsetting. I thought, um, to maybe maybe roughly paraphrase it, but I think it's something to this, that, that something like this was um, describing life um, and, and describing it um, as having to watch something that could have been, never be. Um, yeah, having to watch something that could have been, never be. Um, talking about a life that um, <laughs> didn't live up to its potential. <laughs> I suppose. Uh, I just thought it was, yeah, a beautiful, upsetting sentence. Um, so let's, let's close on that. <laughs> hey. Um, hey. So, uh, so I went to Club Voltaire, which I hadn't done for quite some time. Um, 
it's a space that I'm super grateful exists because it's really wonderful and like small and up a staircase. Um, and it's in North Melbourne. So I reckon you should check it out. Anyway, uh, I went there because five by five theater were doing a play called broken record. It is written by Emily Farrell and directed by Chelsea Matheson, who you may remember directed Stopover, which was the one that I recently saw. And it was about the two Irish people in New York City. And I sat too close to them. <laughs> that, remember that story? Yeah, so Chelsea directed this and she directed that. She's clearly very talented and working very hard, <laughs> seemingly. Um, importantly and impressively, um, Emily Farrell, who wrote it, is also in it playing the lead, playing a girl named Anne. Do I need to paint a picture of the foyer? Maybe, I don't know, let's do it. Okay, so I get there, um, I get my ticket. You know how theater works. Go inside, again, Club Voltaire. I just really like the space uh, because it's, there's like a, there's a quaintness. There's like a real independent vibe to it. Um, I don't know, I think I, I really like being inside that space. Uh, I do the classic socially anxious thing of, because I don't know anybody, I just go straight to the bathroom to just sort of stand there for a second to be like, get back out there champ. <laughs> and so I do that. I, I descend the staircase from the bathroom and then I run into my pal Wheeler, who it's always wonderful, so wonderful to see. Uh, so that was, that was a very welcome surprise. And then he proceeds to introduce me to this like collection of pals that he has alongside him. And they proceed to just be like the most wonderful people. It was, it was really lovely uh, meeting them. I don't know. I'll just, just, just so you know, I met some wonderful people at the theater. Uh, anyway, we sit down, the play starts. You know how plays like to do. It begins. And so we get Anne and we get... <laughs> so Anne, the lead, played by the playwright Emily Farrell, is next to... The actor's name is Jacinta Squires. Um, and they're having this... Just like, you know, it's a, it's a duologue. It's a duologue in what feels like a living room. Uh, and they're, and they're, they're talking and it's like, they start talking about lasagna pretty soon and pretty soon into this discussion of lasagna. I really want lasagna. Um, <laughs> um but that's a side issue. I, <laughs> they continue talking and it's, uh, pr- probably like a six or so minute scene. Not important how long it was, but something's, something's up. And I don't want to brag, but I, I, I guessed a twist. Um, I may not have seen dead Bruce Willis coming, but I saw this one coming. So the Jacinta Squires' character, um, ends up being a cat. She's playing a cat, which I only saw coming because Jacinta embodied this cat so well. There was just this moment where she was like wearing her snuggly jumper and rubbing her fingernails on her thighs where I was like, I think that girl's a cat. And then she ends up being a cat. What I did not see coming was that she was a dead cat. She's the ghost of a cat. And it's one of my favorite twists that I've ever experienced. <laughs> um, super fantastic. She's credited as being internal Anne. And she does kind of function throughout the play as being kind of like Anne, because Anne is suffering from sort of like a non, like an undisclosed mental illness that I am, I, I'm not capable of diagnosing myself. I am, I am not Fraser Crane. <laughs> I do not know. But yeah, so she uses kind of like the ghost of her deceased cat Milo, played by Jacinta Squires, really immaculately. Like, um, to, sorry, I'll finish talking about the cat first. <laughs> um, talks to the cat um, in a fashion to sort of like walk us through as an audience. Like it's like a neat cheat for us to be able to get an insight into how her mind works, as well as... I, I, I suppose watching her sort through the way that she thinks about things. Um, but yeah, so to, to, to skip on back just to when I started a, like starting a, a rant about Jacinta Squires, such like, like a, like an elegant poised woman actor. She was just playing this ghost cat with such, yeah, finesse. She was just like a really, really watchable 
watchable performer. Um, there are more characters. So we're in a share house, that gets established, and we've got Zach and we've got Bonnie. Zach is played by Rayhan Maskin, and Jazz Balmer plays Bonnie. I always assume that everything I say is couched in the understanding that we all share that I am a buffoon. I did not realize that Anne and Bonnie and Zach were siblings. I don't know why this did not hit me until pretty late in the game. It's relatively integral to understanding that this is a play about siblings. I thought that maybe there was like, I went through several theories before I got to the pretty obvious one of them being related to each other. But there was a while where I thought, oh, like a strange kind of like failing polyamorous like thruple. There was a time where it was like, oh, it's a couple with a mentally ill girl living upstairs. Like it's, I went through all these these things before I got to the very reasonable, <laughs> um, yeah, understanding of them being related to each other. Um, the dynamic between the siblings is very kind of like tense and strange uh, as we sort of like begin to unpack the the history that kind of exists there. Um, they did the thing um, in the writings, so like Emily Farrell did the thing, which I will always kind of like adore as like a tropey writing move where I don't know if this was the exact wording, but it was like someone, I think it was the cat refer the ghost cat referring to the incident, um, which being just like, sort of like the mysterious thing from the past that is affecting the present, <laughs> um, which I just always think is, is a, is a charming script move. I think, um, just flagging that we are going to get some resolution, but not just yet. I just think that's really sweet. Um, lasagna, lasagna. Uh, and then, so yeah, we start unpacking why there is so much strange tension between these siblings and what's going on with Anne and why she seems so sort of like a, a bit of arrested development. It seems like she's not quite, she, she's not growing the way that she's supposed to be growing in like a mental sense. She seems to have been kind of like stuck at some point in becoming an adult properly, which, which is kind of like, you know, quintessential fodder for like a share house dramedy about people in their twenties, you know, like someone's as, as is the case in this one. So it's like Zach, the brother is kind of like on his way to becoming a doctor while Anne seems to be more fixated on playing her records and talking to her ghost cat. And it's like, how have people that have grown up together been sort of like led onto such different paths and with such different trajectories when, when, you know, arguably they shouldn't be that way. And, and the way like, I can't imagine what it would be like, because I've got two younger sisters. I can't imagine what it would be like for the three of us to live in our family home into our 20s. I can't imagine what what our relationships would be like and what it would be like to kind of, like, witness our lives so intimately, I don't know, reflecting against each other's. Like, I, I, I don't know if there would just be, like, an inherent spirit of competition. I'm not a competitive person. I'm not sure. See, these are the things that it made me think about. Once I realized they were siblings, I started thinking about siblings. And yes, I am that complex. <laughs> um, uh, I just want to say Jazz Balma is, uh, like, incredible. She's, <laughs> she really knows how to tell a joke. She can take a sentence that sounds like it's not meant to be a joke and turn it into a joke. She knows how to sit in, like, a living room chair and a denim jacket and just be, like... I don't know, a captivating presence. Um, yeah, I was just blown away by this very talented stranger. Emily Farrell, um, Emily Farrell, who again, wrote it and is in it playing Anne, the mentally ill one, did really well at very, very, she did a lot of things very well. But a thing that like stuck out even like 
as the play was going on and once the play was done and once I was like in the car park outside talking about what we'd just seen, I was like something that really stuck out was like she really managed to be so unlikable the entire time <laughs> like, as a character. You know, like Emily herself, clearly very charismatic, um, clearly very talented as is evidenced by her performance and her writing. But, um, but in terms of like Anne as a character, very difficult to root for. Like, even though she's been through a lot of things, it's just kind of like, I can, I can, I can't think of anything worse than having to be like in an elevator with you. Uh, which, which is as hard to write as it is to write a likable person. I'd say it's probably, I don't know, maybe it's even harder than writing a likable person is to write someone this sort of potently unlikable, especially one with a relatively tragic backstory. Some random things that I would like to point out and celebrate in the writing and in the performances are anyone trying to stop a smoke detector from going off? <laughs> In life, on stage, anytime. I think it's one of the best things that humans do with their bodies. I just think that's really fantastic. Um, the second thing is, so Emily's put into the script this like wonderful moment that I think happens twice. Uh, that that I found, it was probably the thing that like stuck with me in terms of my kind of like emotional empathetic experience of the play. Like the thing that got sort of like lodged in me that spoke to me the most as, you know, like Jake sitting there watching this play uh, was this moment that happened where like Anne gets slapped by her sister, gets slapped by Bonnie. And Anne's response to it is to kind of like immediately forgive her and then insist that like nothing happened, that it's not worth fretting about and just kind of like seems to kind of just believe that she has to move on from this immediately and has no right to, you know, fight back or to object to what's happened or hold her sister responsible. And it's just very quick to just be like, let's move past this. I, for whatever reason, feel like maybe I deserve this, blah, 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 blah. Let's keep walking. Um, and that, and I'm, and I'm sure this is maybe a thing that a lot of people experience, but I feel like that's certainly a thing that resonates with me in terms of like my journey in terms of like self-respect and boundaries and, um, and believing yourself worthy of more than dirt treatment, you know, like that, that kind of thing. Um, and, and yeah, it, it was nice to see that on stage. Uh, and the third thing, which I suppose is... <laughs> Um, a minor thing that I, that I just think was really, really beautiful. It was towards the start and it's, it's around the time that I started getting the sinking feeling of like, oh no, I think I hate this protagonist, <laughs> which, which again is a credit to the writing and to the performance and to the directing. Uh, but, um, it's when, so Anne takes this record cause she's playing records throughout the entire show and she takes this record. She puts it on the record player. She sort of like lowers the needle thingy onto the record. And as the music begins, her body, and it's like, this is like <laughs> the reason that I hate it. I, I don't know why I hate it, but it's a thing that I've seen a number of times. And it was not until I saw this play that I realized that I hated this thing. But it's like, as the needle hits the record and as the music begins, the person who put the needle down, in this case, Anne, <laughs> the music starts and you see that it like, it hits their nervous system like heroin and you see their body like melt into like a, like a drunk little dance. And I just find it to be so yuck. <laughs> just, I just hate it. I hate it so much. And I don't know if it's connected to my relationship with like music snobbery, or maybe I'm just like jealous for never having kind of had that experience with a record before. Maybe, maybe it's just envy. Uh, but it, it really was kind of like a, 
like a, like a moment that hit me to do with that character. And it was one of those like really wonderful things of when kind of like that kind of grenade goes off of like, <laughs> of kind of like expectation or something or like a, you know, like a, like a hate grenade. That's one of those interpersonal hate grenades where it's like, okay, I hate this about you. And I feel like this is going to color things for a while. And then it quite reliably does. And in this, in this instance, I feel like it really served the text because, um, God, I, I resented Anne. And I think, and I think that was the best way to experience her. I think, uh, the play as well, it dealt with something that I've, you know, that I find really, really interesting, uh, in that it, it dealt with, uh, the things that we, hold on to from childhood and like the things that we don't even necessarily know that we're holding on to. Um, and, and the thing of like, when you're younger, um, and this is a thing that's been said so many times before, like, you know, when you're younger, like everything seems a little bit, like it's, it's a lot bigger. Like, especially if you get someone during like the, the ripe years of like puberty and like when everything's really hitting really hard, um, the things that you just can't, the thing, your world is so much smaller, so everything seems so much bigger, and you're so ill-equipped to handle everything. So I don't know, and you're just so like porous and weak. Everything's just gonna like overwhelm you a bit. And the play is kind of about the things that we believe about our history as people, like our personal inner histories. And it just so happened that like. <laughs> Like, I, I have many examples of this, but I'm just going to share this one with you that is kind of like, I don't know, I guess, rel like, relevantly tied in a number of ways, I guess. Um, because my my sister's dog died. Like, I, I think it was like the day after I saw this play or two days after I saw this play. Um, and the dog was named Buddy. And she's had it for, I guess, more than a decade. Now, I, I think it's about 13 years. And um, trigger warning dog death. <laughs> um and she, this dog came into our like family's life around the time that I was like 17 or 18. I was like heartbroken and devastated from, you know, like love or whatever. And this dog suddenly existed in our home. And it was my first, I think my first real experience with kind of, not even unconsciously, like consciously shutting my heart off from something. I think because it was like, I almost remember like the literal words in my head of like seeing this dog suddenly around me feeling like an unlovable, like disaster of a, like a, like a reprehensible person. Um, and then being made to be like face to face every day with this thing that does, you know, compared to me, nothing. <laughs> um, and, and, but somehow being deemed worthy of all this love. Like this feels so pathetic to now look back on, you know, 13 years later and, and not, obviously not have any of these real resentments inside of me anymore, but to look back at like 17 year old me who felt these things. And then because of those emotional decisions that I made as like a, like a, as a teenager, I was never able to, I, I, could, I never opened myself up to that dog. <laughs> um, I wouldn't have known how to. Um, cause I somehow managed to lock my chest up from it, um, th th through, through decision-making that was based on the emotions of a teenager. Um, and seeing this play and then going through this, you know, family tragedy, uh, f forced me to, you know, reflect on that and just, you know, reflect on the things that we choose to believe when we're young, but even like less, less about belief and more about like 
the fact that there are decisions that we made when we were like fucking idiots that are still inside of our bodies and like not even necessarily in the world around us, but literally just like still inside of us. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I <laughs> never got to love that dog. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. So, somehow I feel like if, if you dig in there somewhere, maybe you'll find something for you <laughs> in, in that, in that story about buddy. Um, this, this episode is for buddy. <laughs> um, anyway, I, yeah, appreciated this time at club Voltaire. Um, I want to acknowledge and like, I don't know, even just like point at the fact of how much it seems like there was a lot of like a lot of passion and love and care that went into this production, even insofar as like Akansha Hanganahali was the well-being and safety person. I assume that she is the reason that we got so thoroughly warned about so much of the content before the show, which again, like famously, I am not like the hugest fan of, but it was just like, it was a really, really sweet touch that was like, oh, they're really looking out for us. That was really lovely. Um, and somehow, yeah, passion and kindness seemed to seep out of this show. Again, really enjoyed meeting all the people that I met in the audience. I enjoyed going out with them afterwards. I met a lovely Italian man. I, yeah, super wonderful time at the theater. Um, hope to have another one soon. Hey, oh my God, thank you. <laughs> thank you for hanging out with me for this long. That's really, really sweet of you. Um, yeah, I hope it wasn't unbearable. <laughs> um, yeah, um, what to say. Uh, if you have something that you would like James and I to come along to, throw a ticket at us, throw tickets at us, um, we'd be m more than thrilled to come along and then, yeah, and then and then obviously um, then, then talk about it. Uh, if you have anything that you'd like us to talk about for any reason, um, reach out through whatever means you want, even if you just want to like, let us know your thoughts on something, um, or just like have a conversation where we're happy to do so. At least I am. James is, you know, sort of notoriously cruel, but I, I, I'll talk to you. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Praisedionysis at gmail.com. If you want to email us, praisedionysis is, is what we are on Instagram and, and by nature, baby, um, yeah, anyway, uh, praise Dionysus. Praise him. Uh, if you are listening to this around the time that it comes out, please do, if you're in Melbourne, please come to Five Stars. I am in it. Um, uh, but don't let that deter you. I'm in it with Joel Beasley. He's wonderful. It's a play called Five Stars. Um, come to TheatreWorks. It's a wonderful theatre and it should be a wonderful show. So it'd be really lovely to see you there. Um, yeah, enjoy, enjoy the rest of your day. I uh, hope it goes great. hope you're warm. Um, it's pretty cold here right now. So I hope you're warm and cozy. And, and yeah, I'll, 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 I'll talk to you soon.